All right, we'll be in the book of Haggai. Book of Haggai. And this is the third to the last book in the Old Testament. And so it may be easier to find Matthew and then just go back a few pages until you find this short two-chapter book that God has given us. Named, of course, for the prophet that God delivered this message to. He wrote by the inspiration of God. His name is Haggai, H-A-G-G-A-I, Haggai. So where are we at in the historical reference? We are now post-exile. I know this is too small for most of us to see, but we would be around 520 excuse me, 540, I apologize, 540 B.C., 540 B.C., and so Jeremiah, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi all had a time of prophecy, of preaching, of ministry in the pre-exile, then for 70 years the Jews were in exile in Babylon, and then Around 538 BC, there was the decree from Cyrus. Cyrus. There was the first return, and Haggai would be writing during that first return post exile as the people have now been back in the land. And we'll get into some of that background here as we continue to look at Haggai. There is not a lot of information that we can glean from the book of Haggai or from even extra-biblical historical records, are able to understand a little bit about him. know that his name means festal one, which seems to imply that he was born around the time of Jewish feasts. Now, tomorrow night, tomorrow's sunset, is the beginning of the Jewish feast of Hanukkah, or is it also, I think, is pronounced Chanukkah sure if I'm pronouncing it all correctly, but Hanukkah begins sunset tomorrow evening, and so we don't know which feast or exactly uh, his birth date, but there is uh, an understanding that because of his name meaning festival one, there is at least speculation that he was born on or around a feast or on a particular feast day. Second shortest book in the Old Testament, only quoted in the New Testament one time, and that is in Hebrews 12 and verse 26. And then he is mentioned in Ezra, chapter 5 and chapter 6. We know his ministry was very influential in this first post-exile group after Cyrus' decree in 538. And then the first group that came back they began to rebuild Jerusalem and build their homes, but the temple was not finished. They had started on it, but then they did not complete it. So we know as Ezra is also active at this time, there is the ministry of the prophet Zechariah and also Haggai. It also touches on uh, Jeremiah and Malachi. 
Haggai 2 and verse number 3. Who was left among you that saw this house in her first glory? And how do ye see it now? Is it not in your eyes in comparison of it as nothing? What's he making a reference to? He's making a reference to Solomon's temple. There apparently were some, and it even seems to indicate that possibly Haggai himself had seen Solomon's temple in its glory before its destruction in 586 and then the 70-year exile. So it's possible that Haggai is over 70 years of age, and without reading too much into verse number 3 of, of chapter 2, there obviously are others who are there who he's questioning, did you not remember what Solomon's temple looked like. Remember, he is, as I just mentioned, he is encouraging them to get back to rebuilding the temple. It has been started in its rebuilding efforts, but they have not been consistent and have not followed through. And one of Haggai's ministries, his main focus, along with the spiritual priorities of the people, is to get back to rebuilding the temple. And he is questioning them, do you not remember what it looked like before its destruction? So it could be that Haggai had seen Solomon's temple and was over 70 years of age at the time of the writing of this book. So his actual writing would have been approximately 520 B.C., over about a four-month span of time during the reign of Darius, his step Now, Darius is also a title. Darius can also be a title. We often think of Darius the Mede, but this is not Darius the Mede. He is writing during the time of Darius' stepsis who reigned approximately 521 to 486 B.C. So Darius the Mede would have been the emperor during Daniel's time, the emperor that Daniel would have been thrown into the lion's den. This is not that Darius. This is Darius the Stepsis. He most likely, Haggai that is, most likely returned to Jerusalem with Zerubbabel, and other exiles in 538 BC. So he's writing now around 520, and he probably returned to Jerusalem about 18 years earlier, which would have been 538, around the time of that decree that they could return to the land. That decree was from Cyrus, prophesied by Isaiah, named by name, one of the Biblical, one of the biblical evidences of the inspiration of the Bible and the fulfillment of prophecy is Isaiah's specific mentioning of Cyrus by name to actually be the one to give this decree. 538 BC, Cyrus of Persia declared that the Jews could return to their homeland from captivity. We can read about that in Ezra 1 verses 1 through 4. We know that Zerubbabel was the civil leader. And Joshua was the high priest, and he was the spiritual leader in conjunction with Zerubbabel, who was the civil leader. Again, Ezra 3 and verse number 2 is where we could go back for uh, the record in, or the historical record and biblical record in the book of Ezra. There is approximately 50,000 Jews who returned upon that first decree. 
approximately 50,000 Jews that returned. Now, again, for historical context, what other event is going to take place back in the Babylonian Empire and the subsequent uh, empire back in the uh, land of the, the, of the captivity among the Jews who had not returned yet to Jerusalem, to Israel? What other event, what other book? Doesn't the, doesn't the book of Esther, doesn't that take place? Back during, back in the the Babylonian, uh, back in the the land of captivity, uh, they had not returned yet. That group of Jews apparently had not returned yet. Again, just for a little bit of historical context, and so we see this group had returned, 536 B.C. after Cyrus's decree. About 50,000 Jews. You have Zerubbabel as the civil leader, Joshua the high priest. You have Zechariah, you have Haggai, who are prophets, who are preaching, receiving revelation in some cases, and delivering that by the inspiration of God, recorded and preserved for us in the Word of God. And what did they begin doing? They began to rebuild the temple. Ezra 3 and 4. All of chapter 3 of the book of Ezra and the first part of chapter 4, they begin rebuilding the temple. But sure enough, what comes along? Anytime there is the work of God, what happens? Satan tries to oppose it. This is the scheme, the tricks, the wiles of the devil. He has not given up his fights. He has been allowed by God for a period of time, as the prince of the power of the air, the God of this world, he's been allowed for a time to have some influence. So he is stirring up trouble, as Satan does, and there's opposition. So do they quit building their houses? Do they say, we're going to give more effort and time to the house of the Lord, to the temple? Unfortunately, no. And before we get too critical of them, we have to look at ourselves, right? Because many times we're too busy taking care of our own thinking of ourselves before we think of the things of God and prioritize the things of God. So the temple begins to sit with no repairs, no rebuilding, no work being done. This opposition from some of the people living nearby caused the Jews to become lazy, to become fearful, indifferent. And Ezra 4 refers to the fact that the building the rebuilding ceases. Now, 16 years later, so for more than a decade, more than a decade and a half, the temple basically sits while they do what? They build their own houses, they start planting their own vineyards and getting their crops and imagine what I, I don't know what all would have been like for them but did they walk by the temple and see the ruins and see the work see how far they had made the progress and did it not bother them or did they just avoid the temple area altogether I don't know of course all that went on but Haggai and Zachariah speak to this 
they preach about the fact that the temple sits while their homes are getting rebuilt and they're enjoying now the produce of the land and they're beginning to see things begin to grow but then Haggai also mentions that there is some drought some famine that's coming because of their disregard and then Haggai deals with some of the spiritual priorities that are all out of whack so he so has a he has message, a and message. literally, and literally there, are five there are five messages that he will bring, that he will bring over this five-month five, five, span. Finally, Finally, with the conviction of the, the, conviction Lord, of the Lord, the preaching of Haggai, preaching of Haggai, Haggai and Zechariah, finally, as they begin as they to begin prioritize, to prioritize life, the spiritual life, to go to Ezra, to Ezra and read about, and read about one particular one area, area in in uh, Ezra, 8, uh, Ezra 8 and 9, uh, where uh, there where is great prayer from Ezra, chapter 10, he confesses, Ezra 10, now when Ezra had prayed and when he had confessed, weeping and casting himself down before the house of God, there assembled unto him out of Israel a very great congregation of men and women and children, for the people wept very sore. Who is preaching during this time? Haggai, Zechariah. And it's not just about the temple, though it is, but it's also about their lack of spiritual priorities. Their physical needs, their homes, their selfish priorities were over God's priorities, were over the spiritual priorities. So we see, if we, this is, a, this is not a, a good uh, table Sorry, it's a, it's a picture that I cropped. Uh, it's borrowed from Thomas Nelson, uh, a study Bible that I have. But this chart here lists the temples of the Bible. And it begins with the tabernacle, Solomon's temple, then Zerubbabel's, Herod's, rebuilds, 19 BC, and it lasts until AD 70. That's the temple that now is in the present age, which is found only in the heart of the believers. So this temple here, the physical structure, Titus, Roman general, destroyed Jerusalem, AD 70. And that is what is referred to as the Temple Mount today, the Wailing Wall. That's the only part that's left of that temple. Okay, Present temple, of course, is in the heart of the believer, true believers. There's the Temple of Revelation 11 that's constructed during the tribulation by the Antichrist and desecrated and destroyed. And then the Millennial Temple that even Ezekiel prophesies of, built by the Messiah during his millennial reign. And then the Eternal Temple, which is the greatest temple of all, the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. It's a spiritual temple. So that's just a chart that helps maybe bring some of these uh, temples into our, our minds. I wish we had time to uh, go over those in more detail. But let's look at Haggai's message. Look at his themes and his message. Central themes, again, as we've touched on, rebuilding the temple, putting God and spiritual things first. 
Solomon's temple had been destroyed after the glory of the Lord departed. That's Ezekiel 8 through 11. 586, the Babylonians under Nebuchadnezzar came and destroyed the temple. While there was the immediate need of the current temple, it was the spiritual priorities of the people that resulted in the temple not being finished. And it revealed their lack of true spiritual priorities, of really truly seeking God with all their heart, having no other gods before him. No, they hadn't made a graven image. There weren't the high places. There weren't the groves and the idols that they had had before the exile that God had condemned, that he had sent prophets to preach against, and they were judged for and had just spent 70 years in exile. But doesn't it just show our hearts that even after 70 years of exile and now coming back, they get busy for just a short amount of time and then with a little bit of opposition, when the going gets tough, what did they do? They quit. They laid their tools down when it came to the temple of God, but they were happy to continue to work on their own homes. And Haggai deals with this. Verse number two of Haggai 1, Thus speaketh the Lord of hosts. There again we see the inspiration of God. The prophet is writing, he's preaching, Revealing the very, he's received divine revelation, and he's saying, thus says the Lord, thus speaketh the Lord of hosts. This people say the time is not come, the time that the Lord's house should be built. Then came the word of the Lord by Haggai the prophet, saying, is it time for you, O ye, to dwell in your sealed houses, and this house lie waste? Now therefore, thus saith the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Ye have sown much, you bring in little. Ye eat, but ye have not enough. Ye drink, but ye are not filled with drink. Ye clothe you, but there is none warm. And he that earneth wages, earneth wages to put it into a bag with holes. What is he saying? They're greedy, they're covetous. God is starting to allow them to build and to produce and to see the fruit of their labor in their own gardens and crops and vineyards. And they've already begun to show hearts of greed and covetousness. Yet there's no desire for the temple of God to be finished. Where are we at before we get too critical? Where are we at when it comes to the things of the Lord? Why is it that 30 to 33% of church attenders before COVID have yet to return? We know that some of that was a purging of those who weren't coming to church for the right reasons anyway. But why? Why is it that church attendance is so lacking in a time of war around the world, of conflict, of moral decay in our nation? And it's still like pulling teeth to get people to give up a few hours on a Sunday and an hour on a Wednesday night, much less a little bit of time in their personal devotions. And my point isn't to lay guilt trips, but it's to help us. Where are our priorities? If we're not at church, what do we usually fill our time with? Sports, entertainment, our phones, our screens. What do we usually fill our time with? It's usually something that helps to bring self-pleasure. What do we see in the charts about the temple? Every single era in history, God has a place for his people to worship. 
Why does God spend so many chapters of the Bible on the specifics regarding the tabernacle and the temple? Because worship is a priority. Do we come to church for legalistic means, for means of grace or for sacramental grace? No. We come to church because we want to worship our God. We need to see ourselves as little in the sight of a great and holy God. We need to see ourselves as very minute and come with broken and contrite hearts to get outside of ourselves where we spend really six days of our week for the most part and to fellowship together and to bring accountability and to provoke one another to love and to good works. Hebrews 10 and verse 28, and so much the more as you what? As you see the day approaching. But for some believers, it seems like, and even for churches, and I fault pastors who don't put the emphasis on the preaching and the teaching and the gathering of God's people to be under the preaching and teaching of God's word. I, I put some of this at the feet of pastors who have an entertainment model instead of a Christ-exalting, scripture-enriching model. When churches are building bigger buildings for bowling alleys and coffee shops and basically an arcade center for their youth groups, and I'm not saying that we shouldn't have good buildings and nice property and I'm not saying we shouldn't have uh, some, some, a well-kept building. We talked Sunday night as, as in our deacons meeting about making sure that we have paint on the walls and we don't have things broken and that we present ourselves well in our parking lot that we put uh, money and time into. Those are important, but they can't be the number one priority, that we're always looking for another way to entertain the crowds. No, we see the emphasis in the scriptures throughout of the, the priority of the worship of the Lord, of God's people gathering together to worship God through various specific truth-centered methods and where God is high and exalted, we are brought low. It doesn't mean that we can't smile. It doesn't mean that we can't hug and that we can't praise the Lord, that we can't be positive, that we can't have uh, times of encouragement. Of course, but if we walk out of church and all we feel is entertained, then something's wrong. If every time all we do is feel like we got a little pep talk, then woe is me for not doing my job. Not that I shouldn't be scolding and shearing the sheep all the time without encouragement and praise, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with all long-suffering and doctrine. And again, like I said Sunday, if people only come and their only service is Sunday morning, sometimes in James or wherever we're at in the, the scriptures, it can feel like all it is is reproof. And I really don't want to come across as only reproof. I want there to be the exhortation, the long-suffering in, in doctrine. But we have to have that whole counsel of God. And sometimes if you only come on a Sunday morning, you feel like maybe you only get reproof. I don't know. I hope that's not the case. But we see the, the message of Haggai. There are promises in chapter 2 and verse 9 of peace. But he uses all of this in reference to what? Yes, there's a, there's a current temple they need to build. 
But he speaks of peace and prosperity and divine rule and national blessing in chapter 2 in reference to what temple? The millennial temple. The millennial kingdom. And he's saying, live for God right now because there is a greater day coming. And that greater day coming, you want to be prepared for that. God is going to bring peace to Israel. Verse 9, the glory of this latter house shall be greater than that of the former. Prosperity, verse 19, is the seed yet in the barn, yea, as yet the vine, the fig tree, and the pomegranate, and the olive tree hath not brought forth from this day, will I bless you. Divine rule in verses 21 and 22. I will overthrow the throne of kingdoms and will destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the heathen. We see in verse 23, national blessing. In that day, saith the Lord of hosts, will I take the oaths of Rebbe? My servant, the son of Shealtiel, saith the Lord, and will make thee as a signet, for I have chosen thee, saith the Lord of hosts. Does he say, in light of the previous temples and the tabernacle, in light of the future temple, I guess we should just sit back and just put it in neutral and cruise control to the millennial kingdom. Is that what he says? He says, get busy. Build this current temple. You have work to do. You have a calling from God. You have a ministry right now. Keep God first, and part of doing that is to build his temple. And once again, he's reminding them of the centrality of the worship of God, the centrality of God in their personal lives, as well as in the nation. And they have a call of God, they have a labor for the Lord right now. Looking back, yes, at previous temples, but look at what's happened to the previous temple. The one that they're rebuilding. Why did that happen? What will eventually happen, sadly, to this temple that they're rebuilding, that Herod will then also uh, add to and expand. And unfortunately, what will happen in AD 70, it too will be destroyed. And now a temple lies in ruins in Israel right now. But eventually, there will be a rebuilding of it in some way during the tribulation that will then be desecrated by the Antichrist. But the point is, Haggai and Zechariah are preaching the ministries even of Zerubbabel, of Joshua, the high priest, of Ezra. It's right now. This life, this call, this time, this place that God has put you. Get busy for the Lord. Put God first. Priorities need to be right. There's a national blessing. There's a future. Let's prepare now for what God has for us in the future. And what we do now, the way we live now, does matter for all eternity. And the hope that we have for eternity, the hope that we have for the Lord's return, for all of these blessings that are to come, I know there are specific blessings here for Israel. And we as Gentiles will uh, have a, we'll eat from the crumbs of the table of blessing, okay, so to speak. But what does that say we should be doing right now? Evangelizing? Living a holy life, keeping God first, priorities, worship, all is still true for us today. We close with this. In chapter 2, in verse number 7, there is a reference to the desire of all nations coming. Who is that? It's a Messianic prophecy of Jesus Christ. There's even a reference to glory there. I will fill this house with glory, saith the Lord of hosts. A future reference, of course. But even the fact that this desire of nations is Jesus Christ. And that's in one of our Christmas songs. Come, 
I think it's come thou long expected Jesus, maybe. Come thou desire of nations. I, I, don't, I, don't, I forgot to look up the, the song title. But that comes from Haggai 2 and verse 7. And it's a specific reference to Jesus Christ and the glory of God that will be manifested in the millennial kingdom and into the eternal kingdom. And it's Jesus Christ who should be the desire of all nations. And there will be a day, Philippians 2 describes what? One day every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Wonderful book. We only touched on it. Just kind of a a quick 747 flyover. (laughs) But I hope this has been an encouragement to us. And then we'll get into Zechariah and look at some Messianic prophecies as we finish up here in the month of December. But thanks for your faithfulness tonight. And let's be in prayer for one another, uh, for the Holtz and uh, for their family. I know the Vectors recently lost a loved one as well. And uh, I know there are some different needs in our church family. Continue to pray for uh, each one. But let's close in prayer tonight. Lord, thank you for this short book with uh, a, a major message, minor prophet with a major message that reminds us of the necessity, the priority of seeking first the kingdom of God, of keeping Christ preeminent, setting our affection on things above. And though we look forward to the glories of, of eternity, of heaven, Lord, right now we are to be preparing, laying up treasures in heaven, seeking first the kingdom of God. You've given us a job to do. You've given us a calling. You've given us uh, a responsibility as ambassadors, as uh, disciples, uh, to be making disciples and to be sharing the gospel to every nation. And Lord, I pray that you will help us to be faithful in that. Pray for our church family with various needs. We ask for the holds, that you will just give them your peace and your comfort for Tracy and uh, Kim, for the whole family. Thank you for Arnie's testimony and the legacy uh, that he has left for Jesus Christ. And just pray that, Lord, you will help as they make the arrangements for the funeral. Pray for the Vectors, that you continue to give them peace and comfort as well. And I know there are other needs, Lord, that we've been praying for. We just ask the Lord you will be with each one of those. And now we ask that you will keep us safe as we travel home. Bring us back, Lord, uh, together, if it be your will, and by your grace, Lord, on Sunday to worship you once again. In Jesus' name, amen. Have a great evening. And uh, in just a few minutes, we'll meet as uh, deacons with our uh, prospective church members. And uh, just a reminder about that. Have a great rest of the week. We'll see you on Sunday, Lord willing.